Welcome to Next on Facebook Live. I'm joined in studio today by DACA recipient Luis Rodriguez. Luis, welcome to the show. We have Miss Lydia Laith. Am I pronouncing that correctly? She is a licensed social worker. Lydia, welcome to the show. We also have Miss Delana Graysinger, who is the director of International Institute of Erie. Delana, welcome to the show. And Mr. Lynn Johnson, founder and director of Amer Masala. Lynn, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right, so Luis is on limited time today. He actually has an appointment due to immigration purposes. Correct that he couldn't move around, but he was gracious enough to come and give us at least 30 minutes or so of his time, so we'll start with you. One of the things that we want to do at first is just to kind of give an overview to the audience on what the issue is. Undocumented immigrants is what the zero, zero tolerance policy is all about. So we want to give you, this is from the dream.us, courtesy of them, and let's talk a little bit about what this is and what this isn't and bring us up to speed. First of all, we can change the slide out here. Let's take a look at undocumented undoc Im immigrants in the US. Now, first of all, it's about 11 million undocumented immigrants. 4.5 citizens are children that have at least one undocumented parent, 1.3 million, 1 million undocumented Asian immigrants, 400,000 to 600,000 undocumented immigrants of African Afro-Latino and West Indian descent. But when you see the breakdown on the board, you'll notice that the lion's share of our brothers and sisters that are coming over here are from Mexico at 60%. Next slide, please. And even where that's concerned, some would argue that race is a part of the issue where this current issue is concerned, but I digress. What does undocumented mean for the purpose of this show? An undocumented immigrant is a person who lacks lawful status granted by federal authorities, overstayed a visa and fell out of status, entered the U.S. without inspection at a border or port of entry. Next slide. So the Federal DREAM Act, this was introduced in 2001, Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors Act. High school graduates would be permitted to apply for up to six years of legal residence, conditional status. During that six-year period, the student would be required to graduate from a two-year college, complete at least two years toward a four-year degree, or serve in the U.S. military for at least two years. Permanent residence would be granted at the end of the six-year period if the student has met these requirements and has continued to maintain good moral character. Eliminates a federal provision that discourages states from providing in-state tuition to their undocumented immigrant student residents, thus restoring full authority to states to determine state college and university fees. Next slide. So DACA, this is where you come in, Luis. Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This was enacted uh, by President Obama in 2012 by order, not by law. What it isn't is amnesty. What it is is you may stay in the U.S. without being uh, deported during two years, and it's renewable. What it isn't, pathway to citizenship. What it is is the ability to apply for work authorization and a social security number. What it isn't, legal status. What it is is a legal presence. And what it isn't is legal permanent residence, green card. What it is is the ability to apply for a driver's license or professional license. And so, next slide, here we are. Um, the qualifications to meet this are you have, you have to come to U.S. before age 16, must have lived in U.S. continuously from June 15, 2007, have been born on or after June 16, 1981, be over 15 and under 31 years old, be currently in school, graduated from high school, have a GED or be an honorary discharge veteran, have not been convicted of a felony, a significant dis, dis, misdemeanor, excuse me, or three or more separate misdemeanors, not pose a national security or a public safety threat as determined by DHS. So that catches up all of our listeners and all of our viewers where DACA is concerned. So you are a recipient of this program, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, talk about your story a little bit. How did you come to the U.S.? What's your background, Luis? Yeah, so um, my parents actually came here, or my father came here um, when I was three years old, three or two years old, and he did it for medical purposes. So I was really sick down in Mexico. Um, and so, you know, I, I really like to preface this with my father having a nice paying job in Mexico. And like always, you know, we hear the U.S. policies impacting Latin America. And so when NAFTA came about, he lost his job. 
because his job got moved to the United States. And so the only thing that he could do was to immigrate where his job went. Mm -hmm. um, he was an engineer down there working in a trees factory. Um, he knows how to repair boilers and whatnot, but he couldn't provide for us. Um, I was born premature, so I needed medical assistance. And so he immigrated to this country. Um, and from there, he realized that the lives here are just way better. And it's the American dream here. And so um, we tried to apply through a legal way, per se, um, trying to get a visa, trying to do the legal process, but it's impossible. It is not easy as people say. Um, thousands of dollars, uh, years of waiting. For some immigrants, it's a lottery visa. You don't, you're not even guaranteed after you apply. Mm -hmm. I mean, so the stipulations that are put on, they're so complex and so hard to overcome that people come here in a, in a non-documented fashion. Um, and so even then, it, it starts to get more complex from there um, because you start to see these laws that are pretty much racist. I mean, you see from the charts, you know, you have countries from Latin America, who, which is very hard to get a visa versus people from Europe, way easier to get a visa. The darker you are, the harder it is. People from Africa have to wait 21 to 22 years just to get a visa or to, or, or, sorry, to complete their, um, their naturalization process mm. versus someone from Europe can be two to five years. So very, very discriminatory in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And so just listening to your story, I can hear a lot of variables at play. Mm -hmm. And obviously one of the reasons we wanted to go after this today was because we, we want to A, dispel myths, but then B, we also want to address some of the stereotypes involved with uh, many of our friends coming over the border. And you broke down your father's situation. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things at play there. Yeah, a lot of things in play with my father and his job. But a lot of things to play with my mother as well. Mm -hmm. When she tried to come to this country and she tried to apply to come here legally. And one of those things was that she, she went through a lot of sacrifice so that I could be here. And at times there's this level of guilt that I have. Mm -hmm. um, her safety and, and her body was at play. Um, and at times it's hard for me to only imagine what happened to her. But I can only remember big memories of her being put in a back room and, and hearing mm -hmm. screaming and yelling. Um, and I don't know what happened behind that room. Now, when you first came to this country, you started in Atlanta, correct? That is correct. Okay. So what was the process between you arriving in Atlanta and making it here to Erie? Pretty much crossing the border undocumented and getting a plane from Houston, Texas mm -hmm. and uh, going down to um, Atlanta. How long were you in Atlanta? Um, all my life, pretty much 20 years. Mm -hmm. So it's, I'm about to hit 20 years now. Okay. So yeah. recently you're in Erie. Recently I'm in Erie. Yeah, okay. That's correct. Yeah. Talk about your reaction a little bit when you're watching this on the news. I mean, obviously, this all strikes to the heart of your existence, you know, in this yeah. country and your family's existence. What has that been like for you personally? What have your um, public interactions been like since all of these zero tolerance issues have become public? Um, I think there's a level of, I think, sadness when you see the issues come up. Um, because every issue is uh, interconnected, right? The zero tolerance policy with the children at the border. Um, I think for me, it, I think it causes a lot of heartache um, and a lot of anger. Um, I think when I see this online and you, and you hear the news pundits pretty much telling myths, when you see the own administration telling lies about DACA uh, and saying you know, what it is or isn't, um, you hear this rhetoric, but you don't hear the truth of what it actually is. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad that you're having this uh, segment on today. What things in particular would you like to clear up now that you have the microphone? things that you've heard, things that you've seen that just gnaw at you every time you hear it and see it and you're saying to yourself, that isn't accurate. What are those things and what would you like to clear up? Well, one, we're not allowed to vote. DACA recipients are not allowed to vote. Mm -hmm. That's one. I think that's the one thing that I've been hearing. Uh, Obama did this so that uh, he can get more votes. The second part is that we cannot get benefits. The social security number that we have has stipulations on it. The card itself says work authorization only. If you, misuse, if you misuse that number and DHS, Department of Homeland Security, finds out, you're guaranteed to be deported. Um, there's a lot of stipulations when it comes to education, for example. Most states, you cannot, you, cannot, or you cannot apply federally for FAFSA, so to get financial aid. You can't get financial aid. So um, it pretty, that document, what, what it pretty much says is allows us to work and pay taxes, and um, it doesn't even get, guarantee us from getting deported. It's discretionary. So it depends on the official that does pull you over or does stop you. They have the discretion to decide. So that's one of the myths as well, is that it doesn't guarantee us protection. Mm -hmm. So the images and the audio of children 
being separated has been heart-wrenching for a lot of people. Actually, I think it's one of the things that's really led people to flood the streets in a lot of cities in protest. As you are watching these, first off, are any of your direct family members affected by this recent wave of zero tolerance? And secondly, in your household, because you're a married man, what's been the reaction of, of you and your wife as you sit there and you see these children um, in this situation? Um, so no, I'm not impacted right now, but my family that is here is here. Okay. Um, but I think the reaction that my wife and, and my family back at, uh, or here in Erie, what we have is just a level of, of anger, I think, of why is this happening. Um, it's not a matter of politics or whether it's illegal or illegal. It's a matter of morality. Um, this, is not, this is not black or white. It's just, it's just there. It's a level of morality. Mm -hmm. um, and that, for me, I think strikes at me because these children are being treated, and these parents as well, are being treated as criminals when all they're asking is asylum and they're actually doing it in the proper way of coming to a port of entry. Mm -hmm. But the administration has now made it pretty much illegal to do it. Mm -hmm. Is there a fear of this administration? I know when you read various articles, you, you watch the news, even talk to people personally. Um, you speak to people that are in your situation in particular. And there is this fear, this nervousness, this uncertainty because of this administration. Are you living with that cloud of fear and uncertainty over your heads in your household? And if so, how does that play out? Yeah, um, there's always a level of fear. I think the hardest part for me is waking up in the morning. because, And the first thing I do is check my phone and, and type in immigration or DACA. Because every single day something is changing. And every single day this administration is making it pretty much impossible for undocumented immigrants, but also for documented immigrants to be here. Um, we just saw the reports of two days ago that they're letting go veterans or, or people in the military. They're, not, they're pretty much dismissing them from the, from the military because the administration does not want more immigrants to go through the citizenship process. Even though you're, they're yours re residents, they're letting them go and pretty much making them unemployed so that they cannot get through that process. And these are veterans we're talking. And so I think that for me, you start to see these policies, and it's not even about undocumented immigrants. This is about immigrants in general. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're pretty much, and you see, and my, my personal opinion is they don't want immigrants here, zero. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I think it's heart-wrenching and it's upsetting to wake up every morning and see the news. It's something new every day. Mm -hmm. So let's bring Lydia into this conversation. This is somewhat of a package deal because you two are tied together mm -hmm. by relation. Uh, Talk about that a little bit, first of all, and, and then I also want you to touch on your own personal reaction because your background lent itself to us wanting to have you on the show for that reason in particular. But um, what's the relation and how have you felt about everything you've seen so far? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, Luis is my brother-in-law, so he's married to my sister, um, which when they started dating, he's a couple years older, so as a good big sister, I was very protective of Izzy. Um, but... Luis, the story I tell a lot of people is um, my sister's a diabetic, and so um, when she went off to college, we were really concerned about her um, going, having high blood sugars or low blood sugars in the middle of the night. Um, sometimes she would go into diabetic sh shock, which is a, essentially having seizures um, that could, if untreated, lead to her dying. And so um, having experienced that growing up, it was very scary when she went out on her own and didn't have mom and dad to check on her anymore. Um, and... Uh, and as any big sister, I was very worried about her. And then she meets Luis, and um, she set him up with this app on his phone that would alert him anytime her blood sugar went too low. And, um, and so one night, Luis gets like, a little like ping on his phone saying that Izzy's blood sugar was going low, and he knows that that's a dangerous thing. And so he's texting her, and she's not answering. He's calling, she's not answering. Um, and so he like runs across campus to her dorm, like breaks down the door, mm -hmm. breaks in, and um, like saves her life. And so for me, I'm like so grateful for Luis and the things that he's done for our family. Mm -hmm. So we, we said earlier that you were a, and thank you for that story, you were a licensed social worker. I watched yeah. you speak at a rally, very <laughs> passionate young lady. Uh, a couple of things from the New York Times and Reuters, and this is from Vox.com and they're quoting these things. The New York Times reported that from October 2017 to April 20th, 2018, 700 families were split by the Trump administration. Reuters also reported that nearly 1,800 families were separated between October 2016 and February 
2018, suggesting that the practice may have been going on for quite some time. And lastly, from April 18th to May 31st, the Department of Homeland Security officials reported in June on June 1st that 900 and well, actually in June, 1,995 children were taken from 1,940 adults. Now, this strikes to the heart of what you addressed at that mm-hmm. rally that I saw you at and what you've dealt with via your social work. Mm-hmm. Talk about that some, because the trauma inflicted on these kids, right. you you um, specifically went there. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah. educate us on that. So um, I'm a trained trauma therapist, and so I work with kids who have experienced trauma, and trauma can look like um, abuse, physical, sexual, emotional abuse. It can look like neglect. Um, it can be being in a household with someone who's addicted to drugs or alcohol, or um, having a, a family member with mental health problems. Um, or even having someone in your family incarcerated or um, being abandoned by a parent, whether that means through death or through um, them just leaving. And so um, when, when we look at kind of the, the typical path of an immigrant um, in general, uh, that sort of path can also have inherent trauma in it, mm-hmm. right? I, I kind of break it down into three different categories. You have like pre-immigration trauma, right? So a lot of these people that are seeking asylum or are seeking to enter the United States um, without documentation, they're not doing it because everything was like honky-dory at home and everything was fine and dandy. Um, They're doing that because there was trauma at home. So you have pre-immigration trauma that's happening, whether it's um, war and political violence or gang violence or drug cartels or um, domestic violence, whatever that is that prompted them to leave in the first place. So that's a trauma. Then you have like the the actual trauma of migrating, right? So for some people that um, won't be as traumatic. Um, for some of the uh, immigrants from like South America or other countries, they just get on a plane and they can fly here. Um, but for people in like Central America and Mexico, the way that they travel is on foot or or by land transportation, which can expose them to a lot more trauma, whether that is um, sexual abuse or sexual assault or violence. Um, I mean, even something like dehydration, if they're traveling mm-hmm. through kind of the heat and, and extreme um, conditions of, of the border. Um, so you have that kind of trauma of migration. And then you have the post-migration trauma. So then they come here, and um, even before this kind of zero-tolerance policy, right, they come here and they experience racism, they experience um, Xenophobia, they have people telling them to kind of let go of all their cultural ties and assimilate to our U.S. culture, mm-hmm. um, which is traumatic. Which is an amalgam of various cultures. Right, right, <laughs> which is just bizarre to even say to someone to, to let go of their cultural past and ties. Um, and, and we have, you know, um, kind of the, the fear of deportation, right? In general, people, um, you know, kids fear that their parents are going to be deported, right? Even if the kids are born here, mm-hmm. they might wake up every morning, kind of like Luis was saying, and fear, oh my gosh, you know, is is today the day they get deported? Or I think about, like, kids coming home on the bus, right? And mm-hmm. and when I was coming home on the bus every day, it was like, I knew dad was going to be there at the end of the driveway. Right. And that was dependable, and that was stable. And for so many kids right now, they're riding home on the bus, frantic, fearful, mm-hmm. thinking, I might come home today and no one's going to be there. I think the thing that strikes me and and saddens me when it comes to the subject of trauma, Mm -hmm. you'll have one demographic who says, you know, that the children from a certain demographic may experience trauma more via gun violence, incarceration, Mm -hmm. things of that nature. Another demographic may experience more trauma based upon hunger and uncertainty, Mm -hmm. things along those lines. There's multiple demographics that deal with the trauma of bullying and all of this, mm-hmm. mass school shootings. It saddens me that it is parceled out according to what the child looks like oftentimes. Mm-hmm. And even amongst each other, it's like you can't apply that same logic to every group. And that seems to, you know, nod at you a little mm-hmm. bit uh, where trauma is concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely frustrating to watch. I mean, so if we know that this is already happening and then we're inflicting more trauma upon these kids, right? I mean, so now these families are coming here seeking help from the United States and we're separating these families. So not only have they all had all this trauma, but we kind of disregard that and now we separate them and create another form of trauma. Um, And we definitely, I mean, the United States has the resources to solve so many problems that we just don't prioritize. Um, and, And I think going back to what Luis was saying earlier, I mean, it's definitely a racial thing. Mm-hmm. If white families were being split up the way that these brown, black and brown families are, that 
I mean, the United States government would be in an uproar. What's interesting about that is I hear that statement from a lot of our Caucasian brothers and sisters. I mean, it's something that you would expect to hear. I hate to say it like that, but it's true. You expect to hear that from people of color. Mm-hmm. But there, there is a large number of our white brothers and sisters that are crying that very same thing. I mean, this is, would this be happening if these children look like, or would it be um, a non-issue mm-hmm. if these children look like us? Right, right. And I think hopefully more white people are seeing the reality of this. I think mm-hmm. a lot of times you, you struggle with white people with white guilt or kind of the denial that this is a racial thing. No one wants to acknowledge that it's racialized because then they have to unpack all their own internal racial biases. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, hopefully that continues to grow and that people continue to kind of see that as mm-hmm. the problem and then acknowledge it and to kind of put themselves, maybe have more empathy and say, like, okay, yeah, if, if this was my family, how would I be responding? I want to bring Delaney into this conversation. And, Luis, whenever you have to go, we can appreciate that. Facebook will forgive you. Uh, we, we just appreciate the fact that you've given us your time today. So just let us know and when you have to go. Do what you have to do. I want to bring Delaney into this, though, because this is something that from a professional standpoint, um, much like Lydia, you're dealing with this. You're in charge of an agency that deals with these issues on a day-to-day basis. And, again, that was the um, International Institute of Erin. You're the director. Speak to this a little bit from what that director's hat on. What have you seen and what's your take on what's playing out in our country right now? So um, just to give a little background. So our agency is primarily, uh, we work with refugees. Uh, So a a little bit of a different path to come here. Um, But what we do see at the border, I mean, the you know, we, we do identify those kids as refugees. I mean, they are fleeing, as you guys have said, situations, they're looking for safety. Uh, Asylum is a form of that. Um, So you know, when, when we look at this, what we see is um, with all of the travel bans, which, you know, are, I think, change every other day on who can come and who can't come, what we're seeing are uh, Muslims being kept out. And so what we have right now are refugees who came here uh, through legal path, uh, Syrians who have now been cut off from family members because their family members are not able to come through the refugee process because it's been kind of condensed and changed and you know the the idea is more security the idea is more vetting uh, but when we're talking about refugees you're talking about a process that takes you know anywhere from seven years at best up to 20 years mm-hmm. um, you know for some of the refugees who have been Bhutanese or those coming out of um, some of the African camps you're talking about 20 years uh, of being in a situation before you can actually reach the United States so mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, um, I think it's very heart-wrenching, you know, to, to say the least, to see families separated, separated in a legal process, right. um, you know, let alone um, in, in ones, you know, at the border, these are kids, you mm-hmm. know, and I've said this several times to people. We're talking about kids. Uh, you know, Luis mentioned morality. It's exactly that. Like, who, who are we as a country that we have chosen to treat children this way? Um, okay, fine, there's a process that we want folks to go through. There's also a way you treat people in that process. Mm -hmm. And I think we have chosen to treat people as poorly as we can, unfortunately. That's been uh, been a sticking point for a lot of people where the law is concerned. And it's been very interesting for me to to watch and to listen because I engage in a lot of conversations about every topic. And on this topic, you know, people get hung up on, well, the, the, the law, because this is law. And I love to remind them that the law has been wrong on various, various points in history. And sometimes we get it wrong, and there's nothing wrong with it. We've gotten it wrong under both political parties. Right. You know, and there's nothing wrong with saying that. I found it interesting that even Laura Bush and many other Republicans issued statements saying, yes, we need to do something about border control, but this is not the way we're better than this. Right. So certainly this isn't about party, in my opinion. This is about humanity. No, and the, you know, in the ref- refugee system, um, you know, and I'll just kind of stick to that because that's where my expertise is, although you know, we do, as a national agency, work with you know, unaccompanied minors and, and you know, undocumented um, individuals, at the, kids at the border. Um, this has always been a bipartisan program. I mean, always. So the idea that suddenly this is happening in our country, um, I think, has taken everybody aback. Uh, you know, so 1980, the program was formalized. It's a federal program. 
and actually more refugees have come in under the Bush administration than any Democrat. Mm -hmm. You know, we we locally have supporters on both side of the aisle, mm -hmm. you know, so I don't see what's happening right now as a political statement. I see this as people who, um, you know, how do I say this, uh, you know, people have their prejudice and they're just hiding behind something else mm -hmm. to bring those out. You know, so it's just, you know, we support this president because he's Republican. No, you support this president because you're a racist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's that's the way, you know, I, I personally see it. Your so. opinion is your opinion. <laughs> so. Your opinion is your opinion. So we'll bring Lynn into this conversation. If we have this video cue, you know, Lynn is the founder and director of Amer Masala. And um, if you can kind of give us a brief synopsis of what that is and what that means while they cue this video because I had an opportunity to watch you in action and it was wildly entertaining. Oh, sure. I didn't see it yet though. <laughs> <laughs> well, Amir Masala, we are a, a movement. You know, some people, because we do this festival, uh, people just, you know, lock us in as just a festival. We are a movement that is, um, that encourage um, a, a conscious efforts to bring people together across racial, gender, and class lines. And, and the Mayor Masala Festival, which is happening July 14th this Saturday, okay. you know, um, is the example of that. Okay. I'll tell you, we've got the video cue. Let's show the video real quick of one of your drum circles for this um, festival. This was at a fundraiser. You look like you're having the time of your life. I was. <laughs> <laughs> what I thought was so impressive was just the diversity. Obviously, you've got our African brothers and sisters in there, African-American, Caucasian, uh, people from Nepal, all kinds of areas um, in this drum circle. This drum circle is kind of therapeutic, and it brings people together, is it not? Yes, yes. You know, drumming is, is something that is... is My man is, is getting into it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love him. Um, the, the, the rhythm is goes across all cultures. Uh -huh. You know, the, the first rhythm you hear is the heartbeat of your mom mm. or you in his belly. You know, so it touches everybody. Every culture has some forms of, of percussion rhythm. You know, so um, some of that my activities like the drum circle, even Mary Masala, you know, we we um, use percussions as a highlight of bringing people together. And it works. I mean, this is, I've, I've witnessed this several times and that's the thing that strikes me every single time is that this, this, this beautiful blend of people all brought together by sound. So there's a method to your madness here oh, yeah. and it seems yeah. to be working. I also know that you're a strong ac activist and advocate for people and um, the humanitarian in you is very, very passionate. As you watch some of what we're talking about here, what's been your reaction to some of the recent headlines? Oh, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, it's um, anger-inducing, and it's also fearful. And it, it generates a lot of fear within me because, um, you know, um, studying, you know, the racial history in this country, um, in the hey, racial history of the world, um, we've been here before. And one of the most dangerous things that's going on is like where there's this denial that um, was where we headed. Mm -hmm. We're in this rabbit hole. We're getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And we've been here. The world has been here before. I know the word they say like Hitler, for example, has been used. You know, sometimes it's overused. You know, but people have to understand that Hitler wasn't always Hitler. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a, it was a steady prog progression of how he how he got to where where he was Hitler, mm -hmm. and. Um, and some of the things that's happening now is being repeated during that time frame. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the language that's being used for, like for example, immigrants. You know, they're they're infesting, you know, our nation. You know, that's the same language um, Hitler used in, in reference to the Jews and other people. Mm -hmm. um, now, the laws, people people talk about. Well, this is the law, so we need to follow the law. Right. Who makes the law? And we should ask who makes the law. Why did you make this law? Mm -hmm. You know, we we're we're afraid to use. Um, it, it, it one thing that's encouraging with these discussions is is and, and what I see on let's say Facebook is in comparison to when I was growing up to now, 
I see more um, whites, particularly young whites, just being vocal and, and just coming out and say this is racism. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was, you know, back in the day, it was like these other words and this is unfair. But now you even here, you know, you hear this is racism. This is what it is. And that's and that's that's encouraging. This is next on WQLN. I'm here in studio with Luis Rodriguez. We are talking immigration, DACA, zero tolerance and the nationwide pushback on the zero tolerance policy. We're joined by Luis Rodriguez, Lydia Laith. Delana Gracinger and Lynn Johnson were discussing these things. Lynn, actually, uh, the last three guests all touched on, all four of you actually touched on the fact that there's a racist undertone Mm -hmm. to this. Now, to be fair to a lot of our listeners, and many people will read this and say, it's not about race, this is about the law. These people are breaking the law. And why should we make everything about race? This is not that. We're talking about coming here legally, no matter what you look like. What do you say to that? You touched on it a little bit, which is why I wanted to throw it out, because that's the the most general pushback whenever racism is tied to this issue. Well, um, when we talk about racism, you know, oftentimes people want to look at it as as an individual thing, which there is some elements of that. But the biggest thing with racism, particularly when you talk about white supremacy, white ideology, is that it's a systematic thing. You know, so once again, you know, who makes the laws, why they're making the laws. Um, and and it's, this, it's, it's systematic how this country, since its inception, has um, oppressed people of color. Mm. You know, it's systematic how for even the education system, um, it deliberately leaves out even the terms of the term um, white supremacy. You know, when it's why something's behind, like 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 I mentioned Hitler earlier. When you talk about the Holocaust, even in even in in, in history books today, you don't see the term white supremacy in reference to the Holocaust. Mm. When when that was exactly what happened, this was a white supremacist act. What happened in the Holocaust? You know, you don't see the term white supremacy when you talk about American slavery. You know, it, it, it so it, it tends to lead to to be invisible in the discussion as mm-hmm. far as why something is happening. Points well taken. So let's get the let's bring the law back into this, and I want to segue back to Delana after I read this. An article by NPR just released the other day, July tenth. This judge rejects Trump administration's bid to detain migrant children indefinitely. On Monday, U.S. District Judge Dolly G. rejected the request for limited relief from the settlement, often known as the Flores Agreement, that served as the basis for a 2015 court order preventing the federal detention of migrant children for more than 20 days. And so this provision played a key role in disassembling or going against the zero tolerance policy. I want to read very quickly the original Flores settlement, because we talked laws, and this was the thing that uh, the law immediately pushed back on. It says, in 85, two organizations filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of immigrant children who had been detained by the former Immigration and Naturalization Service, INS, challenging procedures regarding the detention, treatment, and release of children. After many years of litigation, including an appeal to the United States Supreme Court, the parties reached a settlement in 1997. So the Flores Settlement Agreement imposed several obligations to the immigration authorities, which fall into three broad categories. And I want to read them. And then we'll go back over to you, Delana. One, the government is required to release children from immigration detention without unnecessary delay to, in order of preference, parents other adult relatives, or licensed programs willing to accept custody. Two, if a suitable placement is not immediately available, the government is obligated to place children in the least restrictive setting appropriate to their age and any special needs. Three, and lastly, the government must implement standards relating to the care and treatment of children in immigration and detention. Obviously, what we've seen play out in the media does not comply to this. Delaney, chime in on that, please. Well, I think it was yesterday uh, was a deadline, and mm-hmm. it was blatantly ignored. So, um, you know, it's interesting when we pick and choose to follow laws in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, th- I think if we go back not too far in our history and we look at uh, what we did with Japanese and camps. Internment camps. Yep. 
Um, so that wasn't too long ago, mm-hmm. and somehow we didn't learn from that. Right. Um, I know there, you know, I remember, you know, maybe six months ago reading some updates around that, and um, as a country, we were apologetic, and you know, not formally, but you know, there was started to have this conversation around how this is wrong and the policy wasn't right. Yet, I don't know that we're doing anything differently. So. Um, you know, from from our standpoint, you know, we continue to advocate for those laws to be followed. You know, as a national organization, we have uh, what we call shelters in place for these children to be released following uh, those laws that you just read. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, being a reunited family is always our first first goal. But you know, I again, I just go back. It's it's interesting when we pick and choose to follow the laws. Lydia, so. what do you think? <laughs> Lots of things. Um, one thing that just keeps coming back to me um, as we kind of talk about like how we could ever do this to people. Um, the other day when I spoke at a rally, I, t- I talked about this This is horrific what we're doing, but this is not new and it's not surprising. Lynn kind of touched on like this has been happening in the U.S. since our nation's start, right? Whether it was African families or, or Native American families or Japanese American families, like we've been doing this to families in the past and still currently, right? If we think of like police brutality and racial profiling and mass incarceration, like we're still ripping apart black families in the United States. So whether you're at the border or you're in Chicago, like we're ripping families apart now. Um, But it's, so that's not new, but it's also not surprising um, because if if you dehumanize a group of people, you can justify doing anything to them. That is a part of the playbook from this country's history. That's historical fact. Right. So, so, so we've done that um, in in every instance, right? When when we um, and when I say we, I mean the U.S. government. When the U.S. government likened African slaves to um, apes or, or kind of subhuman species. Um, then, then they could justify doing anything to them, right? When they likened Japanese American people who had been here for generations, these weren't like Japanese immigrants. I mean, some of them were, but some of them had been there for two or three Roughly generations. Roughly 60% of them were right. U.S. citizens. Right, so, so those people, they, they called them roaches, right? And, and so they could justify doing anything to them. So now we see the same happening to, to um, Central American and Mexican immigrants um, and, and saying infestation or calling them all um, like rapists or criminals, right? That they, we've because we also dehumanize people with a criminal record, mm. you know, we also kind of count them out as being worthy of human compassion. Um, and so when we, when we criminalize an entire group of people, we also dehumanize them. And, and when we do that, then we can justify doing anything. So when I see this happening um, to these children, I'm, I mean, so upset. I wake up at 3 a.m. some days and I'm like so upset figuring out like, what can we be doing more? Because mm. I feel so helpless sometimes, but, um, but it's not surprising because, of course, we're doing this. Mm-hmm. We've we've convinced ourselves that they're not worthy of our compassion. Mm-hmm. Well, you're listening to this is next on WQLN, live in studio with Luis Rodriguez, Lydia Laith, Delana Gracinger, and Lynn Johnson. I spoke to a friend of mine from India, and he finds it very fascinating. He said, "Can we not see that America just has issues?" with getting along, as basic as that sounds. And I'm going to you with this, uh, with this um, observation, if you will, Luis, because whether it is Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, kneeling at football games, school shootings, the border, the list goes on and on and on. And the fact that there is a brokenness, as great as this country is in certain areas, we seem to be blinded to the fact that there's just this mass brokenness in our country that we are ignore, that we're ignoring. Luis coming from a different country that has its fair share of issues. We know that America is the land of opportunity. But what goes through your mind or what has gone through your mind over the years as you've watched all of these things play out in media across the country? Um, I think, and it's, and it's very interesting because I don't consider myself I'm Mexican, by paperwork, I'm Mexican, but I feel that I'm American. And so when I see this, the first thing that I wanna do is start to fix a lot of these issues. A lot of these issues are interconnected. And and for me, I, I start to see everything play out from you know the school to prison pipeline is based on race. When you start to see the immigration policy is based on race. When you start to see poverty, it's based on this classism. And so everything is inter, uh, interconnected and it 
And if one thing is hurting, other things start to hurt as well. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want to add one point that sure. we're talking about laws. Sure. And something that really upset me was um, seeing people, especially comment, well, this is you know, the laws, and quoting Romans, the Jeff Sessions quoting the Bible to justify the separation of families. People forget that Jesus was a refugee. Mm -hmm. He left, and he went to Egypt. And, he, and they opened their, their arms and they accepted him there. Mm -hmm. and, and if people are justifying the laws and they're like, well, it's lawful and we're going to quote the Bible, read a little bit deeper because you're going to find a lot of information there. Mm -hmm. And the person that, for a lot of my Christian friends who are just follow the law and do it right and go back to your country, tell that to Jesus then. You know, on every talking head show, you had pastors, bishops, reverends, people from different spiritual backgrounds of every creed, every color, pushing back on that passionately with them utilizing. Lynn, what went through your mind when the Bible got dragged into this conversation? <laughs> oh, man, there's a lot of stuff that went through my head. You know, because I have, I have family members that are ministers, and we've gotten, and over the years, we've gotten into to some serious discussions about Christianity. One of my things is, you know, Christians don't want to do a racism. And he started off, once again, a lot, a lot of stuff is rooted in. Before white supremacy, we had to understand that there's, no, there's, there's literally no such thing as race. So we had to understand that this is a social construct. Okay. So part of this social construct is, you know, is inventing this whole thing as race and, and determining who's white and who isn't white. And they give them a certain status of being white. All right. And part of that status is starting to admit and twist history. So... The Christianity is part of that omission and, and, and twisting. So you had to take this, 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 this thing called, well, it wasn't, well, they say it's Christianity. The roots of Christianity did not start in Sweden. So you, so you, so you make these images of people in the Bible that they look like they're from Sweden or Germany mm -hmm. or something like that, when in fact, you know, these are dark people that was in, in the Bible. All right, so you start off with this, this lie from the, from the image, mm -hmm. okay? So here we are now, we got this white racist quote from the Bible that justifies racism. So we have to understand the roots of this until mm -hmm. we understand what's going on right mm -hmm. now. And multiple white pastors exactly. came to the same assessment where that's concerned. I wanna segue just to, this is one of the reasons why this, this new direction of Nexon with this, this transitional period that Erie is in, we want the voices of everybody. We want to see our new American brothers and sisters at this table, African-Americans, Caucasians, because I think that when you have a monolithic conversation about such complex issues in a country that has been uh, where our white brothers and sisters have had home court advantage, in particular our white brothers have had home court advantage, you can't have a meaningful dis discourse mm -hmm. without all of these voices at the table. I want to talk about the value of our, our immigrant brothers and sisters to this country and to this state in particular. Erie's population is being uh, bolstered or propped up a little bit by our new American brothers and sisters. I'm quoting an article by Kai Rizdow um, from Marketplace. And you were the focus of this article, uh, Delaney. One of the things it talked about was for a population that hovers around 100,000, there's been an influx of new residents, immigrants, and they make up 20% of the town's population. So I want to talk a little bit um, and I want everybody to chime in on this. What you've seen from the people firsthand that you help, some of the pathways that many of our immigrant brothers and sisters are taking to get settled in in Erie. Um, so, yeah, so let me start by saying that, you know, the, the refugees and immigrants that we work with, they, they identify Erie as home. Okay. Um, and they do find it to be a welcoming place. So we'll give Erie props props on that, um, you know, so that that's a, a plus side to this conversation for sure. Um, you know, as far as that number that you referenced, uh, you know, we look at that as, as kind of a diversity number because refugees do go through a process that about five years uh, they start to apply for citizenship. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we're talking a large number of refugees who have become citizens are part of that number. So we have a diversity number of about 20% in, uh, in this city, which is large. And that brings uh, 
a very, uh, what we're seeing is a very positive economic impact to the city of Erie. New businesses being opened, um, you know, people supporting those businesses, uh, things, you know, what Lynn's doing, you know, bringing that diversity, the murals that are going in downtown, mm -hmm. all of this conversation around how Erie can be more inclusive of, of individuals and, and really making it a place for, for people to, to come to. So um, that's just kind of a, a little bit of a background there. And, the, and like I said, some of the positives that, mm -hmm. are, that are happening around um, some unfortunate conversations. I want to rattle off some stats from Immigration, American Immigration Council online. And this is for the state of Pennsylvania. This demographic you're talking about roughly makes up about 6% of Pennsylvania. You talked about the economic impact um, and I know Luis is gone now, but nearly 5,000 deferred action for children arrivals, 5,000 DACA recipients roughly live in the state of Pennsylvania. But the economic impact, immigrants in Pennsylvania have contributed billions of dollars in taxes. Immigration-led households in the state paid $5 billion in federal taxes, $2.1 billion in state and local taxes. Undocumented immigrants in Pennsylvania paid an estimated $134.9 million in state and local taxes. This was 2014. Their con contribution would rise to $186 million if they could receive legal status. Doc DACA recipients in PA paid an estimated $20.8 million in state and local taxes. And last, I want to give some stats on entrepreneurism. Um, 51,291 immigrant business owners account for 9.3% of all self-employed Pennsylvania residents, and that was in 2005, and generated $1.2 billion in business income. Immigrants accounted for 13.7% of business owners in the Pittsburgh metropolitan area and 13.1% in the Philadelphia metro area. So we're seeing a similar pattern, pattern play out here yeah. in Pennsylvania, I mean in Erie. Yeah, yeah, I, definitely. I mean, we um, we have funding for a microenterprise development program. So we've helped 20, in the past almost two years, we've helped 22 individuals open small businesses, um, you know, which is Ladies which is and a gentlemen, large that is Lynn Johnson's cell phone. <laughs> Lynn broke the number one rule of media. Please silence your cell phones. Lynn, we read you the, we read you the contract. <laughs> I'm sorry, Delaney, go well, ahead with That's okay. So 22 new businesses, um, you know, in Erie in the in the past year, which, you know, small businesses, you know, one or two employees, but, you know, making making an impact, you know, with the idea of of, of growing. So, I mean, we definitely are seeing that there is a study that came out um, by Department of Human Services in 2017 under the Trump administration that looked at the uh, the value of bringing refugees into the country and what benefits they received and what they gave back. And in the end, it was a positive number of over a billion dollars mm. going back into the U.S. economy after benefits received. So, um, you know, there's, and that was under the Trump administration that got quietly swept under the rug because it didn't come out in the way that I think the administration had hoped. They were hoping for, for something a little more negative to tout, um, but, you know, over a billion dollars. Uh, and so we're starting to see that, you know, in Erie. And, you know, the conversations have been great. Folks are engaging in this, looking for ways to, to really work with refugee populations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, the, the DACA folks, I mean, they're all paying, they're paying taxes. They're contributing. They're, they're, this is not a, not a negative. They're, they're giving back. Um, and if it's not in tax dollars, which again, you know, the majority of them are working, mm -hmm. um, you know, what we're looking at as just a quality of life, mm -hmm. right? You know, they want to be good neighbors. They, they, they want to have their children's in schools that, that they can get educated and that you live in safe neighborhoods, you know, so it's, it's an all around quality of, of life, um, you know, component that, that we're looking at uh, mm -hmm. to the plus. Lydia, as a social worker and somebody who, and we'll, we'll touch on this with every single one of you before we close out, you know, I'm ever, I'm ever cognizant of the fact that the stories have a lot of power. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to pass judgment. It's very easy to come to um, foregone conclusions unless you have interfaced and interacted with someone's story firsthand. Mm -hmm. And if, if all three of you, starting with you, if you can give us a story of um, you dealing with someone, uh, either through work or what have you. I know Luis is a relative, but dealing with somebody that has kind of changed your perspective, because I know that it, I don't know if you've always been in a position where you've seen things the way you see them now. Give us a story to kind of help change the way you view life on these type topics. So this is 
a little bit of a roundabout because I've already kind of told the story of, of my connection to my brother-in-law, Luis. Mm -hmm. And give this question some thought, you too, as well. Um, but so uh, I've also worked with men convicted of sexual offenses. Um, and so I uh, was interning and working on and off. Um, I've interned for probably like five years working with men convicted of sexual offenses. And um, that I think most people could agree is, is argue, arguably the most hated group of people um, in our world potentially. Um, and so working with them, um, my, my mother also works, works with that population and has done so for 17 years or so. Um, so growing up, I kind of had the idea that they're not all monsters per se, um, but uh, I went in to my first internship um, working with them, kind of knowing all the stereotypes that we have about them in our, in our country, right? That they're all kind of waiting to prey upon people, that they're all monsters, they're all predators, um, that they can't be trusted, that they can't change. Um, and within my first year, I mean, I just saw their, their tremendous capacity for growth. I saw their ability to feel remorse. And um, the, the, most, the, the pivotal moment for me was I was conducting interviews. Um, I was interviewing them and, um, about their life stories and kind of getting to know like how they came to commit a sexual crime and what their life was like before. Um, and kind of what their life has been afterwards. And um, the most common thing I learned about from these people was that they all had trauma of their own, mm -hmm. sexual or otherwise, they all had trauma of their own. Um, but that on top of that, um, the label of sex offender weighed on them so heavily. And I remember sitting across from one client and him looking at me and saying, um, you know, my label is a sexually violent predator. And I have two kids and I have a wife and I love and care about them so much and I don't feel like a predator, and I don't feel like I'm violent. And, and he was weeping in front of me, and I was looking at him like, yeah, I don't see you as a violent predator either. Like, you have so much capacity to grow and be a better person. Um, and so I think that moment for me was really pivotal in kind of shifting the way I viewed all people, and to know that every person has a story, every person did not just wake up one day and decide to hurt other people or decide to, to do something illegal or decide to break rules or whatever, right? That everyone has a path that leads them to this point and that most people um, are, are redeemable and that they, they are all relatively good in the end um, if we're open to that possibility. Excellent. So I'm, I'll segue to Lynn on this because Lynn, is just there, there's certain parts of your personal profile that um, remind me of Dr. King a little bit in the, in the respect that Dr. King had a very broad worldview. And sometimes, regardless of who you are, us as African Americans included, sometimes we get tunnel vision and we start to believe that all of these narratives um, mm -hmm. are centered around us. With you, what was the point that you looked at the world um, through this collective lens? What, what's the experience that took you to that place? You know, I, I was thinking about your question, and, and it's really not just one experience. Okay. It's, a, it's a series of experiences, and, you know, from a child, I was kind of like a bookworm. I was reading encyclopedias, <laughs> and I know, like, the maps, for example, and, and I went to a Catholic school, and I remember in the seventh grade, they asked me to draw, um, draw us, us to draw a, a picture of Jesus Christ. And I'm a, you know, I'm a kind of an artist myself. And I drew this picture, and Jesus Christ was brown skin. And the nuns had a fit. And I'm like, and we got there arguing, and literally arguing. And I pulled down the map and, like, look, this is where this story took place right here. There's <laughs> people right here. So that's stuff like that was one experience. Others were like, you know, like series of things, like, um, like as an adult, you know, I was in school district, you know, as a behavior specialist. And, um, you know, you see, like, the, the immigrant kids. And this is what we need to learn. America's going to learn a lot from the immigrants. Right. You know, one thing we can learn big time is from the families. And, and plain old um, simple being humble, humility. Mm -hmm. um, I had to think really hard about any time a refugee kid or immigrant kid disrespected me. American kids are the ones that interesting point. That, that will like you know give me the middle point. finger and cuss me out and throw a desk at me and stuff. <laughs> you know, but I never had any of the refugee kids disrespect me. And when their parents come in, they're so um, honorable and respectful. You know, when a kid, they, when their child has done something wrong, mm. 
you know, and some of me come like, you know, I, I, I accept my apologies, my, you know, for my child, and da, 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 da. Um, that's a ton of experiences with like, um, I think it hits me the, the hardest is, and most is how they have more of a sense of family and humility than us Americans do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? So you're taking some cues from those experiences and, and again, it's expanding your worldview and mm-hmm. the way you, you know, kind of think about things. Right. Excellent. Delana, what experience can you point to? Well, I think I was fortunate to grow up with parents who really, and family that reinforced the idea that if you have something to give to somebody who's in need, then you do that. Um, and also that, you know, we, we treat others as we want to be treated ourselves. Mm-hmm. So going into this line of work, I've been doing it for almost 21 years. Um, I've got a whole set of stories I could, could tell, but I think the one thing that I I like about what I do is at the end of the day, working with people who have been in such traumatic situations and experienced so many different things that I personally will never be able to experience, that we can sit at a table with one another um, and we can laugh. You know, and sometimes we forget to laugh in all of this trauma and all of this ugliness. And, you know, I think it really instills a sense of, you know, what Lynn was saying and, you know, the family, respect, connections, um, you know, and I, I think that, that that keeps things very real and, and close to my heart, you know, is that we're all people, we all have stories, and, you know, I think we need to be a little more empathetic when, when we're looking at somebody across the table before we just start judging, you know, what they look like and, mm-hmm. and where they're coming from. Yeah, I speak to people that don't necessarily get it from other perspectives. They don't necessarily understand what it may feel like or look like to walk in someone else's shoes. And what I find is a common denominator amongst these people is that they are in their own self-induced bubble. They don't spend time with people of other, other groups, ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, racial backgrounds, what have you. And it causes this very narrow mindset. And when you talk to a lot of them, many of them are well-meaning, just they haven't crossed over because they haven't given themselves the opportunity to do so. So I appreciate that in times like this, you take inventory of people from a human standpoint, not from a political party standpoint, from a human standpoint that kind of get it. In closing, very quickly, each one of you, I'll start again with Lydia. What are you doing to bridge the gap in personal conversations when you have tensions like this in this country? Um, in your own circle of influence, we'll go around before we close. The thing I try really hard to do, and it's difficult sometimes, is to call people in versus calling them out. Mm-hmm. Um, in a world where we're on social media all the time and people say ignorant things, and our knee-jerk reaction is to like call them out and say, hey, that's not okay, here's why, blah, 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 right in a public forum on comments that everyone can read. Um, that's calling them out, and when we call someone out, the walls go up. And so what I try to do a lot of times, whether it's people um, that have a little bit more power than me or my peers or you know people I work with, um, I try to call them into a conversation, and I try to ask more questions. I try to learn what their story is and how they got to this point to have this opinion, um, but to call them in so that we're having a discussion of, of equals and of, of an equal power dynamic as opposed to me kind of yelling at them for saying mm. something I don't agree with. Thus not judging them too harshly for not seeing it the way you do. Right, exactly. Very good. Delana. Yeah, so I'll just play off of that. You know, as I said, I've been doing this a long time, so family, friends, everyone knows what I do, where, you know, where my time's in, invested. So, you know, I'm open. So I always tell people, and anytime I present, ask the question. You know, just ask it. It doesn't matter how un-PC it sounds. Just put it on the table. Just put it on the table right. so we can talk about it. Because that's, you're going to get something walking away from this. I'm going to get something walking away from this, and hopefully it'll bring us to a better place together. Mm-hmm. But if you don't ask it, I can't answer it. You keep going, you know, running with maybe you're afraid or maybe this or that, you know. So, yeah, just ask the questions. And, and I'm always open to that, and I don't judge what questions people ask because I've gotten the whole gamut of, of things. So, um, you know, just being open to that. Thank you for that. Lynn, how are you bridging the gap in your circle of influence? Um, I agree with everything they say. But also, I, I lay all the tools out. You know, sometimes you need like a, a soft towel. You know, you shouldn't be like that. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes you need the hammer. Stop, what, you crazy? You know, so I, I, I use like the festival as like um, opportunity for people to bring together. 
All right. But other forms I've been to, I, 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 I break out a hammer. Like, are you crazy? You know, this is this is don't make any sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Tell me how this makes sense. You know, so it's I, I, I bring out the whole, I bring the whole toolbox. Right. Right. Whatever's needed. We appreciate that. So listen, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show today. <clears throat> no, Louis had to leave early, but it was so important to us at WQLN to have a personalized narrative attached to Doc. I think I thought it was important that people hear his story. Thank you, Lydia, for bringing your narrative, your story to the table, Delana, all of your experience and everything that you're doing um, at the Institute. Lynn, all of your experience, thank you for that. You know, these aren't just headlines. This isn't just some sound bite on the news. This is life. These are people's lives, whether it's this issue or, or a host of others. You know, I think it's important that we stay in touch with our humanity when we see these things and try our best to view and inspect <clears throat> the contents of these news stories through that lens mm. and to try to come to conclusions based on that. So we thank you for all the work that you've done. You've tuned in for our first Facebook Live um, episode of Next, and you've been listening to this first uh, kind of dual episode as well. Tune in next month where we will go after the entire issue of child support. You've seen a lot of things on the news about the Felix Manis case. And obviously child support was something that was at the root of that. We really want to go after that. Is it in step with the times? Is it outdated? Are there parts of it unfair? What does the law say? We'll analyze these things next month on, on next. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. We will see you next time.